Wednesday, November 4th, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Auger, and today I've got a very special guest with me. I've got the founder and CEO of the Elite Amateur Fight League, Jesse Nunez. Jesse, how are you doing? Doing good, brother. How are you doing, Patrick? Doing great. Uh, it's great to hear from you. Uh, you know, I've, I've researched the Elite Amateur Fight League. I know a little bit about it, but just to give our viewers who haven't heard about it, can you just give a brief overview of, of what the league is and what you're trying to trying to do from a big scale? Absolutely, man. So, uh, you know, when you look at the the sport of MMA, the UFC is doing a fantastic job at the top. I mean, Dana White's basically created a whole new sport, uh, but it's a really young sport and hasn't fully developed into a mainstream sport. And we did some uh, research about six years ago, did a full year of R&D and found that the missing key ingredient into making MMA a mainstream sport was a national amateur platform type competition. Right. If you look at the NBA or the NFL. Uh, the NCAA was around 20 years before the NBA was. It was around 20 years before the NFL was. So they do a great job uh, really uh, uh, promoting and building brands behind athletes and giving them a place to showcase their skill, to grow as athletes, build a fan base before they ever get to the pros. And that's why people follow that point guard, you know, from Duke to the, to the NBA. And they follow the, the quarterback from USC to the NFL. And right now, uh, MMA doesn't have that structure. And uh, so we concepted a team versus team, state versus state, national amateur MMA tournament, uh, basically following the same uh, premise as the NCAA basketball tournament, but then applying that to the sport of MMA. And that's what we do at the Elite Amateur Fight League. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I love that idea. I agree that, you know, for a while now, Michael Fidel, the deputy editor here, he, he's gone off and, and started a site, MMAprospects.com. Shout out to that. But, you know, we, we've always talked here at the Body Lock about how when you're looking at prospects, and especially on the amateur side, there's not a lot of, you know, set leagues going on. You occasionally see some undercard bouts on promotions like LFA or Bellator, but there's not really a league like you're talking about. I love this idea. I think it's, it's great. With that being said, just to dive into it a little bit more, uh, you know, in terms of the teams you're talking about, state versus state, are the teams gyms? exclusive do you have guys from multiple gyms being on the same team since it is state versus state yeah so it really depends man in a state like florida where they've got one of the biggest and best gyms in the world american top team they were able to furnish us a whole team right they were able to give us seven guys at seven weight classes and supply a team jackson wink did the same thing out of new mexico but uh some of the other states like illinois uh their seven fighters came from five different gyms uh you know teams like indiana that seven different fighters from seven different gyms. So really what we're looking to do is, is find the highest ranked fighter that is willing to take a tough fight. That's the key because you've got a lot of high ranked fighters that aren't willing to take tough fights and, uh, and, and comprise the best guys in each weight class uh, to make up a team to represent their state in a national tournament. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and you know, as, as a, Guy from Illinois, myself. I know you're from the Chicago area. You know that's, that's not surprising, right? That you've got you've got a lot of gyms mixing together there. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it makes perfect sense what you're saying in terms of of you know needing to take those tough fights because especially when you're in the amateur level, something else that I've noticed particularly is when when you're trying to to get to that next level to professional, you kind of you know 
not necessarily take easier fights all the time, but you want to kind of build those skills and take the easier fights while you're an amateur so it won't show up on the pro record. Right. And I'll be honest, man, most coaches uh, are doing it the right way, right? They're they're looking out for their fighters. They, they understand they, they need to get them experience. Uh, obviously, no one wants a losing record, so they know they need to get them some wins. But uh, at the same time, if, if you've got five amateur fights that all have lasted 30 seconds, you've gotten no real experience as an amateur, right? And if you're fighting only guys with losing records, are you really challenging yourself? Are you really ready for the pros, you know, uh, in, in that case? So, uh, you know, there's got to be a fine balance. Most coaches find it. You know, most coaches find that good balance of, uh, of fights that maybe they think their guys should win and then challenging fights for their guys to get better. Uh, what we offer is completely unique to the, to your, re, your your regional fight scene. Uh, most regional fight scenes are, are, are gym shows, right? You have a gym that's connected with the promoter and, you know, they, they get their guys wins. You know, if you can line up that whole gym on one side of the card and then find them wins on the other side of the card, that's that's really what amateur MMA looks like in a lot of regions across the country. And and you end up getting a 5-0, and a 6-0, and a 7-0 and guy who really doesn't have a whole lot of cage experience because his fights are so quick. And he's done it against people that don't belong in the cage with him. Right. And if, if you were to take that model and use it in any other sport, you'd have horrible athletes going pro. Right. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, we see some guys that go pro too quick and some guys that stick around in the regional fight scene for way too long. And, and the reason that is, is there's no structure. There has to be an ability to go, okay, this guy's five and oh, six and oh. Uh, we think he has the talent to go pro. Let's put him in this league with other five and oh, six and oh guys, get him tough fights, build a fan base on television, prove that he's ready for this, this professional side of the sport before we move him on. And, and really that's what we've done. We, we take those five and oh guys and six and oh guys and match them against each other. And, and we get some pushback from some of the coaches saying, Hey, you know, I don't want to get my guy a loss. This is too tough of a fight. Uh, the fact is, man, when you go pro, no one remembers your amateur record. You don't want to take that first tough fight as a pro and get that first loss when you're in the professional ranks. You want to do that in your amateur career and push yourself and test yourself because the day you go pro, you're 0-0. And no one on a professional level pays, uh, uh, whether you're a 7-0 amateur or a 4-4 four four amateur, you're getting paid the same as an 0-0 pro. It doesn't matter, right? So why not challenge yourself? Build the fan base on television that, that we offer and, and know that you're ready for that next step, uh, you know, whether it, it, good or bad, right? If you find out you're ready for it and you can move on, excellent. If you find out, man, I, I am just a regional fighter, at least you're, you, you, know, you know where you stand and no one's lying to you and, and giving you a false record or false hope of getting to that next level. And uh, that's what the NCAA does really well for football and basketball and all the other mainstream sports. And that's what we plan on doing for MMA. Now, to move a little bit more to the business side of things, yeah, uh, you know, we, we haven't we haven't seen a a league like this that I can recall um, since similar to the professional league of the uh, you know international fight league, right? When you had the yeah way back in the day in two thousand six two thousand seven, bringing this type of format back, are there challenges or you know obstacles you face from a business perspective that are harder because of the format? Than say you know someone like LFA or Titan FC who or, or even some of those very small regional you know promotions yeah. in in certain areas of the country are you finding difficulty because of the format at all? Absolutely, uh, it's there's a reason why nobody's done this before. It's it's hard to do, 
the logistics of running a, a 12 team or 16 team league and getting full teams back and forth and paying for their airfare and paying for all the logistics and putting them in hotel rooms and treating them like an NCAA athlete, it's costly, right? When you, when you have a small regional show at home, everybody's local. You drive a couple guys in if, if you need matchups. And that's much easier uh, to do from a business perspective. Uh, you know, even regional pro shows, right? If you're grabbing all the local talent, uh, there's no hotel costs there, or there's limited hotel costs. There's limited travel costs. Uh, the, the coaches and, and the fighters are all local. And, uh, you know, you don't have a whole lot of logistics to, to maintain and, and, and pay for in a regional scene. Um, so it's absolutely hard to run a team versus team structure across the country with teams from coast to coast. Uh, you know, so th that's one of the challenges. The other challenge that we're finding is people have been doing it, you know, this way for 25 years where they fight on the regional scene. They rack up a bunch of wins. They hope they get noticed. They get moved on to a regional uh, professional uh, opportunity and, and hope they get noticed there to move on to the UFC. When people have been doing things for 20, 25 years, it's hard to convince them to do it, to do it a different way. Right. So uh, uh, we stopped trying to convince people. We just put our platform out there. We put it on television. We show the exposure. We promote even when the fights aren't going on. We follow our athletes up to the professional ranks and make sure everybody knows where they're fighting, who they're fighting. And, and we continue to promote for, for those athletes. And uh, it's been taken notice of. And, and UFC fighters that are coaches in our league are spreading the word. Uh, you know, we've got big gyms like American Top Team and Jackson Wink and Team Quest and Fight Ready out of Arizona, who's our current national champions, really uh, getting behind the platform. And, uh, you know, we're not begging for anybody to come take a tough fight anymore. If you want to take a fight that's going to put you on television challenge your fighter and, and prove that he's ready for the pros. We're here for you. If that's not what you want to do, I'm not here to convince you it is. Yeah. Value chain disruption is what entrepreneurship is all about. And, and it sounds like you're doing that. And it's just, yes, it's never easy, right? Especially yeah. to be the first guy. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. so uh, we, we'll get into the, you know, some of the fighters on the pros that, that you've been affiliated with here in a second, but just to talk a little bit about, um, you know, the cost that you mentioned, right? Because yeah. it is much more expensive to bring everybody over to do all of that. But on the face of uh, Chicago Business Podcast, yeah. you know, you you stated that you only, the first year even, and, and the second year, it sounded like you had pretty low losses, right? Which is common. Anytime yeah. you start a business, you're going to, you, I well, very it's, few. <laughs> it's common to have a loss. It's not common to have a small loss. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's exactly. That's what I was getting to. It's common to be, you know, in the red after the first year of starting a business to be that small though, especially with the cost you're talking about yeah. is, is that caught me by surprise that caught my attention. How did you manage to do that? Was there, you know, just really efficient processes in place and, and cost cutting structure? Was yeah. there enough revenue growth and, and interest from this format that you were able to kind of say, Hey, like, you know, yeah, we took a little bit of a hit here in our first couple of years, but now we're, we're, you know, accelerating. Right. Right. So, I mean, it, it was, it was a really putting a plan in motion, man. We, uh, we knew coming in, we were going to lose for the first couple of years, uh, especially with the amount of logistics that it takes to run a league. We partnered with promotions uh, that were having events and we would bring them really good matchups uh, in Arizona and in California and, uh, you know, while we didn't have any revenue coming in from ticket sales because the promoters that we were working with were, were collecting that, what we did a really good job on was distribution. 
we knew we had uh, uh, opportunities on NBC Sports Chicago, and we reached out to local advertisers who want to reach that male 18 through 34 demographic on a sports channel. And, and we made our money uh, on sponsorship sales in the cage and on, and on television broadcasts. Uh, if we were depending on the ticket money, we probably, you know, we wouldn't have made it. And uh, that's really the, the angle we took from the get. We want to be a media product uh, with the best amateur fighters from across the country and a national state versus state tournament. We knew that it, we're filling a hole in, in, in the industry uh, and sports television needed, you know, more content. And more than, more than ever, they need it today because of uh, what's going on with coronavirus. But as long as we built uh, a good league with good content, with legit fighters that were exciting to watch, uh, we knew we would turn the corner. And so we just put our head down and, 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 and charged at it. And eventually in season three, we had 975% revenue growth. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, COVID came around for season four. But uh, we're still really confident with what we have, the product we've built. And there are some silver linings, you know, with with uh, the opportunity to get on a bigger broadcast network, to talk to the people who need sports content and a sport that's proven they can do it during COVID. And uh, that's that's where we sit today. Now, not relying on ticket sales, especially for regional promotion, is very unique. I would say that's that's the first I've heard of for a, a regional promotion to really go the, the broadcast distribution route. And it seems to have paid off here. You mentioned that 975% revenue growth. Yep. In in the video that you have on, on your website about that growth, it looks like now, if, and maybe I'm mistaken here, that during that growth, ticket sales are now a factor. Is that correct? Yeah. So the initially, we had uh, pro affiliate promoters that would be hosting a fight in Arizona and we would bring Team Arizona and Team New Mexico together at their event, and uh, and they would get the ticket sales, right, or California or whatever. In season three, after working with our affiliate promoters, uh, we decided, hey, let's 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 have our own events here in the Chicago area, and we had one in Virginia as well. Worked with a couple affiliate promoters in the West Coast to, to do those West Coast fights, and uh, did a really good job at at getting venues selling tickets. So the, the ticket revenue plus sponsorship plus broadcast, uh, you know, sponsorships really is what turned a corner for that revenue growth. But we knew in season one and two, we weren't selling tickets, right? We, nobody knew who we were. Uh, we, we had to build an audience. Uh, we had to build teams. We had to build the trust inside the industry so that we would have the right talent. And uh, so it, it was a needless risk to take on at that point when we knew we could partner with promoters who already had shows that needed fights and that needed broadcast uh, partners. So what we would do is we would approach a, an affiliate promoter and say, hey, uh, I own a broadcast company or um, a production company. We'll come film all 14 of the fights. We'll give you your seven. We'll keep our seven. And everybody wins, right? They don't have to pay for production. I don't have to pay for an event. And we get to build our products uh, on our own um, on our own angle. And, uh, and that's really the angle we took early on to minimize the risk uh, but once we learned what we were doing, it was time to, uh, to to do it for ourselves. And, you know, you talk about risk and you you touched on it a little bit a second ago in terms of COVID, right? That's mm -hmm. that's throwing everything uh, uh, in the world of live sports just all over the place. For this particular business model, too, I would imagine, right, because we've heard about COVID outbreaks at particular gyms. Sanford MMA, right, had several fighters. Once one fighter gets it, depending on who they're they're training with, you end up spreading out through the gym 
uh, rather than, you know, particular areas or, or states necessarily. Right. Right. So for you guys, um, you know, how have you handled COVID given the business format that you're yep. going for? And do you believe that once things, now that, that ticket sales are a factor, do you believe that once things kind of settle down, hopefully in the next, you know, fingers crossed <laughs> six months to a year, uh, that ticket sales will return in full force? And has there been any indication of that on your end from from fans or things yeah. of that nature? So, so the effect of COVID initially was very negative, right? We we had our season slated to start in March of 2020. Obviously, we all know what happened with COVID. It, everything got canceled starting in March. Uh, it really pushed us back a, a full year at this point. I don't think we'll have another event until probably March of 2021. Uh, so the immediate effect was negative with with canceling the season. Since then. It's given us some time to really plan out some things that that we wouldn't have had time to plan going uh, directly into the next season. It's given us time to build the league out where we, we were at eight teams. We'll be at uh, possibly 16 teams. We know we'll be at 12, but there's a possibility that we start next season with 16 teams rather than eight. Uh, and then there's other things like uh, uh, mobile you know, betting sites and gambling sites that all of a sudden are are just a, a main part of the industry and and being able to apply for uh for licenses and 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 being a bettable entity i think will uh, give us an opportunity uh to make up some of that revenue that we know we're not going to make through ticket sales we don't plan on having anybody at our events for the full year that's our plan we're hoping our national championship will be live with live attendance and fans but uh i don't see us having people in the stands or in a building inside for probably the full year until the national championship. So, you know, I mean, IFL was, was one of my favorite styles of a league, right? I, I miss it dearly. Uh, <laughs> I got to ask, uh, you know, why did you decide to do amateur and, and why teams, you know, why, yeah. what, what led you to that route? Well, I mean, I, I think a lot of people liked IFL. It was just, it was unique inside the sport of MMA. It was a, it was a team-based concept, but the truth is I don't think, there's a whole lot of professional fighters that want to be part of a team. They want to be uh, the best pound for pound fighter in all of MMA. And, and they don't want to have to rely on, you know, whether my team wins uh, to move forward, which is why when we decided to go team versus team, uh, we went, we went the amateur route. And the real reason that we decided to go team versus team is more of a business reason. Uh, there's 35 million MMA fans uh, in, in, in the Americas. And there's 191 million casual sports fans in, in all of the Americas. And uh, what is a casual sports fan? A casual sports fan is someone who buys the jersey, wears the hat, watches it on television, buys a ticket to the event that really isn't a hardcore baseball or, or hockey fan, right? They like the Blackhawks because they're from Chicago. So a casual sports fan is tied to their sport via peer relations because they want to they enjoy it with their friends. And geographical location because it's the home team. So uh, we wanted to bring more casual sports fans into the fold. And that's why we decided in the team versus team product, if if we can get you to be a fan of maybe one fighter because he's from Chicago and, and all of a sudden you become a fan of Team Illinois and that guy moves on to the next level, uh, you'll still be his fan over at the UFC or wherever he goes. But you'll also still remain a Chicago fan, right? You want the jersey. You want to cheer for the home team. You want to talk about something with your friends that, that enjoy MMA or maybe that just enjoy sports. And, and that's really the reason we went for team versus team state versus state. 
Uh, and then we did it on the amateur side because we understood that the pros really don't want to be on a team, but the amateurs, you know, to get the exposure that we're giving them, don't care that they're on the team. They want to get to the next level. And, and this is the best opportunity for them to get to that level. Got it. And, you know, you mentioned betting, which that's all the rage right now, right? Virginia yeah. just passed several things to allow betting in states are following suit um, with the, the investments in your, your uh, league. Right. Yeah. And I, I want to pivot to this a little bit is you guys have a very unique take on this where you are allowing fans to invest in the league. And if I understand correctly, you've partnered with WeFunder yeah. to allow fans to essentially buy shares. How has that been going? Have you seen a lot of fan interest? Is it strange to have fans essentially, you know, <sighs> own part of the company? Well, I mean, part of the, the whole concept of, of this thing is we want to, you know, disrupt the industry. And, uh, and it's the only way to really, sorry about that. Oh, no worries. <laughs> You know, so part of this whole thing is is we really want to disrupt the industry. And uh, part of the industry is who owns sports teams. I mean, if you look across the spectrum of all of professional sports, uh, you've got millionaires being turned away by the NBA because they're not good enough for the NBA, right? You don't have the normal guy, the normal Joe, uh, that can own a piece of sports team. And uh, with the, in, the invention of crowd equity crowdfunding, we thought, man, wouldn't it be great if our fans can become owners of the league and uh, you don't have to be a, an accredited investor, which means you don't have to have millions of dollars in the bank. Uh, you can invest as little as $300, become an owner in the league and actually own shares of equity in what we're building with the elite amateur fight league. Our business model is way different than most. We're building a sports league and our plan is to franchise off our teams and pay dividends to our investors. Meaning we don't plan on selling the league. We plan on franchising off teams and making money uh, for our investors when those teams get sold. Uh, so if we can build 32 teams across the board uh, that have value, even if there's valued as little as a million dollars, each that's $32 million at a, at, at a current $5 million valuation of the whole league. Uh, you know, we plan on going that route with what we're doing on, on our business model. Uh, it's not going to be overnight. It's not going to be tomorrow. It's not going to be in two years. It'll probably take us five years to get to a point to where we may be franchising off teams. But uh, it's the opportunity that we're giving to the normal sports fan, the normal MMA fan, uh, guys that, you know, never have an opportunity to get in on the ground floor with something like this. We're, we're real proud that we decided to do it this way. And, uh, and you know, we're excited about the offering. And, you know, with that offering, are we talking also about like voting shares here where, you know, they're, they're getting perspectives, all of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it won't be voting shares. It's okay. common shares. So yeah. common shares, meaning you own a percentage of whatever percentage you put in of the pre-money valuation. That was at $5 million when we started the raise. Obviously we're going to be worth more than that in season four and in season five. And, and really the value comes or, or the payoff comes not in a sale of the league, but rather the franchising off of teams and, and, and when, uh, that happens, we're, we're able to pay dividends to our investors. Me as an owner, I don't get paid unless my investors get paid, right? As, as an owner of the league, if I want to pay a dividend out as 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 a 90% share owner, I can't pay just myself. I have to pay everybody that that has ownership uh, inside of the company. Uh, you know, obviously we'll have salaried employees and people who run uh, parts of the business that will be getting paid a salary, uh, but they won't own percentages of the league, uh, you know, and then you know, it's, it's just a great opportunity 
for anybody who wants to get involved in the sports industry, uh, you know, 300 bucks. I mean, most people can invest $300 and, and that's the opportunity we're offering. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a unique opportunity. You know, everything you're saying in terms of, you know, letting the fans have some shares and getting them more invested in it makes sense to build that fan base as well, right? If, Absolutely. you know, I'm, if, if I could go own, you know, a piece of the Chicago Cubs, and sorry, I don't know if you're a White Sox or Cubs guy. I'm but a White I, Sox fan, man. Ah. So I take offense to that stuff. No, I'm joking. <laughs> well, still, uh, White Sox as well. If I could go own for three, uh, you know, some shares of that for $300, you know, minimum, that's a huge investment. Uh, yeah. Now, now, when we're talking about, you know, uh, circling back to some of the professional fighters that you've been affiliated with, yeah. uh, I know you, again, spoke on that podcast about Sam Alvey being an integral part uh, of, of, you know, helping the league get off the ground. And Frankie Sands is also your fighter relations guy. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So Frankie Sands is our fighter relations guy. Uh, he's been with the league as as our uh, our play uh, not our play by play but our, our fight analyst uh, since season one. So he he's he's been with us since season one. He's taking an active role in in, in fighter relations uh, this year uh, as part of the uh, executive team. Uh, Sam is the coach of Southern California, the Southern California Kraken, and has been in a, a huge part of our league over on the West Coast and, and and you know finding us fighters. They were the original national champions in season one. Uh, you got guys that fought on that team, like uh, uh, the the Kim brothers, who are who are right there on the cusp. Uh, both John and Josh Kim, uh, Spike Carlisle, who's a UFC fighter, was on his team originally in season one. Uh, they fought Team Arizona. Who, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, he's a Marine uh, veteran. Kyle Stewart was on Team Arizona in, in the first concept season. Uh, and also UFC fighter. So we got guys that have started, you know, in those first couple seasons that are making that turn on, onto the big stage and in the big platform. And then in season two, there's just a slew of guys that, uh, that are on the cusp. I think Kaleo Romero is one of those guys. Uh, uh, the guys out over in Jackson Wink, uh, there's a few of those guys that, that are right there on the cusp that have been fighting for LFA uh Ricky uh, Farrar, uh, that was originally in Team Indiana, moved over to train with Sam over at Team Quest over in California. He's been fighting both Bellator and LFA. Uh, I mean, there's just a bunch of guys that uh, that we gave opportunities to that, that are finally getting uh, to live out that dream. And without, you know, uh, the Frankie signs of the world and and Sam Alvey, uh, you know, without those guys jumping on board and, and, and getting those guys involved, uh, we probably aren't as far as we are today. Well, it's always awesome to hear about, you know, fighters, you know, from their true beginnings, moving yeah. all the way up uh, in, into, you know, the big, big league, so to speak. And with that in mind, I know you've, you've talked about this being essentially the comparisons to the NCAA, right? In yeah. terms of getting that amateur fight league. In terms of when fighters do decide to go pro, yeah. is the end goal to get them to promotions, say, as like Titan FC, LFA, or is, is your vision one day that this becomes so established and, and gets enough recognition that if, if someone goes through the league, wins multiple years with the team, is looking great, could then go pro with a bigger promotion like Bellator, the UFC right, one, right. something like that. It's going to take a little bit to get there, but it's absolutely what, you know, what we foresee our league being. And, and I'll bring some examples into that. 
most fighters in the UFC have have sturdy amateur records. Then they have you know eight to ten pro fights that that, that are very impressive before the UFC will even consider them. But there have been a few UFC fighters that didn't take that path. And uh, let's say Brock Lesnar in, in in his case. Let's talk about CM Punk getting his shot very early. And the reason those two names got those opportunities were not because they were super talented, which I think Brock Lesnar was and maybe CM Punk wasn't, uh, but they got those opportunities because they had a fan base. They had people willing to follow them to come watch them in the UFC. UFC did not care whether or not they had a huge amateur record or a great pro record. They just knew that those guys were going to be great ticket sellers. They're going to be great entertainers. And, and they gave them their opportunities early. So if I do my job at the Elite Amateur Fight League and I find that opportunity for talented fighters, if I give them three years in the Elite Amateur Fight League with television exposure, great fan base building, people know who they are, why wouldn't someone take a shot on a guy that has a fan base? And so if I can do my job correctly, we're really helping you know companies like the UFC and Bellator find these guys that can make them some good money uh, on, on the promotional end of the sport. Uh, you know, and with that being said, man, let's talk about fighter pay because everybody's talking about fighter pay. Right. Yeah. I, and, you know, before we make that transition to fighter pay, I 100% with, with what you're saying in terms of getting fighters signed to the UFC, right? We've seen it on Dana White's Contender Series. You got the occasional, you know, someone who has a background in combat sports maybe makes the transition to MMA or they've got enough of a fan base that they can just go ahead and go straight in rather than having to do, you know, the paying of dues, so to speak, on right. the regional scene. So it it certainly makes sense. And I do believe there is a, you know, a, a pool there that you can grab from, especially if the brand gets elevated where, you know, it's nationally recognized and it's, it's really speaking for the amateur fighters. In terms of fighter pay, you yeah. know, when you're talking about the amateur leagues, you yeah. know, I've, I've heard stories where you're, you're paying to fight. Right, you're, you're doing the right. medicals, doing all of that. Yeah. Uh, what does that look like on on your end? Is this you know sure. an opportunity where if I'm going through an amateur league, like I'm you know being compensated something? <laughs> well, obviously, to hold amateur status, you can't be paid to fight. I mean, that's that's just the the, the facts of having the amateur status. Uh, but you know what we do, I think, better than anybody else is, is treat them like NCAA athletes. We we pay for their flights, we pay for their ground travel. We pay for their food when they get here. We pay for their lodging. All they really have to do is worry about showing up to fight. They don't have to worry about all those logistics and and, and what it's going to cost them to get out, uh, you know, to an event. Uh, and and then we give them the opportunity to prove their talent against uh, a top amateur from across the country. Where if you stay in and just your little nook and cranny of the Midwest or or uh, the south the Southwest, you're you're going to beat those one or two guys that have talent, then you got eight, you know, soup cans to beat up before you can go pro. And, and we, we, we've really put that model on, on end and, and said, Hey man, if you're, if you're that five and oh, four and oh guy, uh, here's an opportunity to, to, to travel uh, on our dime, on the league's dime, uh, be treated like a, a professional athlete uh, or an NCAA athlete. You get, you know, you got to learn how to travel. You got to learn how to cut weight while you're traveling. You got to learn how to stay in a hotel. You got to learn how to show up to the fight when it's not in your backyard. And these are all the things the NCAA does for other athletes, right? They, they basically train them on how to be a professional. And, and that's what we do with the elite amateur fight league. If we can build these guys a fan base, we think where we offer value is what their pro contracts will look like in the future. 
uh, you know, it's a travesty what these guys are making uh, at the highest level in the most dangerous sport in the world when they step into that cage for the first time. Uh, you know, and I get why the pay is the way it is. It's these guys have no fan base. Uh, the, the, the professional promotion has to build them up to have value. And, and therefore, there's not a whole lot of value, you know, when you step in as a rookie uh, in, in, into those scenarios. It's different than the point guard at Duke who gets a, a $8 million contract before he ever dribbles a ball in the NBA. But the reason is, is that that point guard at Duke has millions of fans that are willing to follow him to whatever team he's going to. NCAA doesn't, I'm sorry, the MMA industry doesn't have that. And that's what we're really trying to change. We're, we're trying to, to make it so that these guys can build a fan base as amateurs when they're young so that they can get paid when they move on to the pros. You also mentioned on the face of uh, Business Chicago podcast that you spent a full year yeah. of just R&D, which, I, again, I love that concept. I know a lot of people that would rail against that and be like, no, you got to get going. You got to you know, figure it out as you go along. But I personally, I'm a big R&D guy yeah. uh, in terms of any any type of new business, right? You got to make sure that everything is there before you you leap full in. During that time, during that R&D, did you learn any you know crazy insights, or was there something that really stood out yeah. to you that uh, you know helped you when you did actually launch and go through all of this? Yeah, during that year of R&D, we started uh, knowing we wanted an MMA media product. We, we knew we wanted that, right? We we didn't know what it was going to look like. Uh, we didn't know uh, exactly what it what it was going to be, and I think that the big thing we learned was that if we were going to be a professional MMA promotion, we were going to be the twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth best professional MMA promotion breaking into the game. If if we did a good job, uh, meaning you know you got A level talent on the UFC, you got B level talent in Bellator, you got C level talent with professional fighters league, or you know. Uh, World Series of Fighting back then. And then you've got a bunch of D-level talent even below there and all these different larger regional promotions. The truth of the matter is if we're going to be a media product, no one watches D-level talent on television. That's just, no one watches single-A baseball on TV. Therefore, no one's going to watch the fifth, sixth, or seventh best professional MMA event on television. But what we found was that, man, there's this glaring hole in a multi-billion dollar industry that every other sport takes advantage of. The NCAA basketball tournament grosses a billion dollars in five weeks. That's amateur athletics, a billion dollars in five weeks. If we can follow that format and use it in the, in the exciting and uh, the growing sport of MMA, why wouldn't we go to be the best national amateur league in the country? No one else was doing it. It didn't exist, hole in the market, in an industry that needs what you do, that's still a young industry and growing, trying to be a mainstream sport. I believe we found the key to making that transition. And, and that's why we jumped in the game after that full year of R&D as a national uh, amateur MMA organization. Makes sense to me. And I also got to ask, though, in your background, because yeah. you were a professional poker player for a bit, right? Before I all this. Not, I was a semi-professional. Semi-professional. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> still, I mean, if I if I remember correctly, you placed, what, seventh at the World Series? Uh, the so, first time the World Series came to Chicago in their circuit events, uh, I placed seventh at the World Series of Poker here in Chicago at the Horseshoe Casino. Uh, you know, and, and I really got into that. Uh, I got into this business because uh, I'm, I'm a producer, but I got into being a producer 
from my original business, uh, Aztec Audio Video, where we uh, uh, built and installed high-end electronic systems in homes. Uh, we then converted into building man caves. That turned into a, a television opportunity uh, that we spun into the Man Car Crew television show, which led us to build a relationship with NBC, which then allowed me to concept the Elite Amateur Fight League and uh, you know pitch it to them. And, 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 and lucky enough, we got picked up in that first season on NBC Sports Chicago. So, uh, yeah, just a bunch of uh, opportunities and taking advantage of those opportunities. And, uh, you know, if you don't do that, you, you, you really got no one to blame but yourself. Yeah, I mean, I, it's one of those things where I always tell people that want to know about business. It's, you know, you start with one thing. And you have no idea where you're going to end up, right? I, you know, very, very rarely does, does somebody say, okay, I'm going to start this business and then it takes off. That's what they're doing for the next 20, 30 years. Usually it's exactly what you're talking about. Starting with Aztec audio video, ending up going into poker, then getting an opportunity from that to go into TV and, and so on and so forth. And, and the reason I brought up poker is because one thing I always like asking people as well is about unique skills that might be outside their range of, you know, their profession, so to speak. If I'm a, you know, if, I, if I'm a contractor or an electrician, you know, I might have some skill that you would never associate with being an electrician yeah. that really helped me out. Does poker playing and having been at that level, does that help you with negotiating? Does it help you in terms of making deals, anything like that? I know that, that's a thing I've always been curious about. I play a little bit, but I'm, yeah. I, I would not win at any event. <laughs> so. I, I think what led into... And, and, I think it starts before poker. Uh, it was the United States Marine Corps experience I had. Uh, it, it really teaches you how to read people. When, when, when First, you got to learn how to be a good follower in the Marine Corps. Uh, then they teach you how to be a good leader. And, and as a leader, you got to be able to read you know, your, your, your Marines. And, and, and you've got to convince them to do some things that normal people wouldn't do. And uh, it, it takes a different uh, mindset with which each individual person to really you know, lead a uh, a squad of Marines, right? So some guys uh, are motivated by different things and, uh, and you've really got to just, you know, get personal and know, know your man and, and know what you need to do to, to motivate them to do uh, the things that you guys all need to do together. And uh, I think that's what led me into being a good poker player. You just got to sit there and learn those guys and, 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 and really pay attention to their mannerisms and what they're doing and when they're betting and, and what they do when they win and what they do when they lose and, and what they do when they fold and what they do when, when they stay in a hand, they shouldn't. And it's just, a, you got to be super attentive to, uh, to who you're playing with or who you're leading or, or who you're in the game with. And, and with MMA, it's, it's very similar. You've got a, a ton of different relationships, whether it's the coach, whether it's the fighters, whether it's a, a broadcast entity, whether it's a business partner or, or an affiliate promoter, uh, you've got to just, you know, you've got to be able to, uh, to read what they need, what they want, and then be able to, de to deliver that to keep a good relationship. And I think that's probably with any business. I'd agree. And thank you so much for your service, of course, and awesome insight there into, you know, a, a, an aspect overlooked a lot on the business side of MMA, right? In terms of being attentive, being able to look of all that, that is a general business, you yeah. know, savvy you should have, but especially in MMA, I think, I think that applies very well. Uh, with that in mind, I mean, I want to thank you so much for being on the, the show, all the awesome knowledge you dropped. 
any events lined up? Any any dates? Anything you want to you know let us in on here? Sure. So, uh, <laughs> so I think that the, the newest thing right now, obviously, is we 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 were trying to get an event kicked off before uh, before the end of 2020. I really wanted to do something, but uh, the state of Illinois and Indiana are still not giving out permits, and that's kind of where we're based out of. Uh, we can go down to Florida and have an event, uh, uh, but you know we're, we're not going to do that. We're we're gonna we're gonna sit on what we have currently until we have an opportunity to run the full tournament, meaning all 12 teams or all 16 teams in one place and in an NCAA type of weekend, right, where you run the whole thing and record the whole thing and broadcast the whole thing. Uh, we're going to wait until we can do that to kick off the next season. Uh, we were going to try to rush into an event here or there, uh, but I just don't think it, it does us any good uh, to rush into things. Uh, the other thing is we're probably going to have two professional events next year highlighting some of the guys that have gone pro and are ready to make that jump, right. That have been with the elite amateur fight league in the past and giving them opportunities to fight as pros with our broadcast partners uh, and, and giving them more exposure. Uh, so I know we want to do that next year. Then obviously uh, at the end of the year, the, the, we funder opportunity closes. So if you got an opportunity uh, to invest in, and you're interested in MMA or, or want to be part of a sports league, uh, you got to jump on it before the end of the year because uh, it's, it's going to go away January 1st. And, uh, you know, we, we'd like to get our fans or any sports fan the opportunity to invest uh, with us on WeFunder. So make sure to check out WeFunder.com slash Elite Amateur Fight League or just search us in their search bar. You hear, you heard it here, folks. You, if you've got, you know, some money, you want to invest in a, a league or a sport. I know a lot of you that watch this show have talked to me about investing in MMA there's your opportunity right there. You got to the end of the year. Make sure you do it. Uh, again, thank you so much, Jesse. Really appreciate the time. Awesome, man. Hey, I hope uh, when we do get events up and rolling, you're sitting ringside with us, man. So uh, yeah, I'll I'll be in the Chicago area. So yes, I, I will almost certainly be there. I can't wait for it. Awesome, man. Hey, become an owner. <laughs> All right. <laughs> if you're gonna twist my arm, uh, yeah. I don't know White Sox. I don't know. I got I got to review it first. White Sox. Nah, no. <laughs> <laughs>